Let's go to God in prayer before we uh, open up our text here. God, we come before you humbly. We lay the things that trouble us at the foot of your throne. We approach your glory and your splendor knowing that we don't deserve the things that you have offered to us. We don't deserve the grace you have given or the mercy that you continue to show. We don't deserve your love or your care or your guidance, but you give it anyway. I pray that we would be mindful of those things as we live our lives, that we would be people of mercy because of the mercy that we have been shown, that we will be a people of forgiveness because of the forgiveness that we have been granted. We will be people of grace because of how gracious you have been towards us. When we feel like we have the need to be righteous or hold our own or demand the things that we believe we have coming, may we remember how far you came for us. I pray for boldness, I pray for courage. That we would have the ability to go from this place into the world in which we are called to live. Be the people that we've been called to be. To be the people that we claim to be. And to proclaim the message of your Son and our Savior to a world that is perishing without Him. Pray for these next moments as we open your word that we would be still that your spirit would work within us and we would have the wisdom to follow where you lead from this place forward. We thank you for Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. And Jonah chapter 3 is where we'll be today. Probably not an appropriate thing for a preacher to say, but you know, sometimes words can get in the way. Um, we have this uh, thing when we're going through grief counseling and helping people through helping people help other people through times of grief and, and the thing is this if you don't know what to say don't say anything just be there um, sometimes your presence can speak so much more than any of your words can speak And sometimes words get in the way. Uh, I believe there was one of the uh, early church writers, maybe Augustine, who said, um, always preach the gospel. If necessary, use words. Um, You know, as a way of living out the gospel. Words can get in the way. Sometimes we don't have the words, right? Sometimes... Uh, we don't know what to say, we don't know how to say it, we don't have answers, and so instead of just being quiet, we end up trying to stumble around on something and making it work, and it just doesn't work. Other times, uh, we have very few words. Uh, We know a few things to say, but we don't know any more than that, and it feels like we should be able to say more than that, but we don't, And, and so those words can get in the way. 
Most frequently, though, the thing about words is we have no idea the impact that they actually have. Um, we have this little saying that many kids learn as a young one, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is a dead lie. <laughs> uh, words, man, they pierce, they hurt. Um, they can lift up and they can build up and they can encourage and, and, you know, there's sometimes we say things, and as soon as you say them, it's like, man, I shouldn't have said that. And, and I want to take it back. Can you just pretend you didn't hear that? And it's like, no, you can't. Right? In a courtroom, you know, you hear a judge say the jury will disregard the last statement that they just heard. Watch a TV show called Bull, and it's about a, a guy who is, uh, he's working with juries about teaching lawyers how to select jurors. And so the lawyer that works for him will say something, and the judge will say, Objection, you know, granted, the jury will disregard the last statement, and Bull always says, no, they won't. <laughs> because we can't disregard the things that have been told to us, said to us, said about us. Words can build up. Words can break down. And so frequently, we really don't know the impact that our words have. And so words can become a stumbling block, and they can get in the way. I, I wish I knew what Jonah's message actually was, and we'll, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, and we're going to come back around and, and get this in a minute, but his message is so short. Five words in Hebrew, I believe, that Jonah proclaims to the city of Nineveh. Um, a message of few words. Even if it was a little more than that, maybe he expounded on that in some places, maybe changed it up. I don't know, but uh, the book only records this one proclamation that Jonah went to the city proclaiming. There's times where I have, you know, wondered how many times can you preach the same thing because the gospel is so very simple. Um, challenging, hard, difficult, full of a demand of sacrifice. But Jesus summed up the whole law and the prophets in two sentences. Love your Lord, your God, with all of your heart. And love your neighbor as yourself. I said from all of these things, the, the rest of the law hangs. And really the same can be said for the, the law of the New Testament. The law of Christ. Love God with all of your heart. And love people. And so because the message is so simple, it, you know, we can go from different books and different areas and different stories and, and, and different texts, and, and they all really say the same thing. Love God with your whole self. And love people with the same passion that God loves people. And I tell you, I am grateful that God is a God who is so consistently generous with second chances. I am grateful to read through all the different stories in Scripture of people who failed, some of whom failed miserably, some of whom completely defied what God had asked them to do in saying, God says go this way, and I'm going that way. And I'm not only going that way, I'm running that way. And I'm paying a massive fare to board a ship to go as far away from where God told me to go as possible. 
And God found him. And not only did God found him, not only did God find him, but when he found him, he put him to work. I'm thankful that we have recorded stories like Gideon, who we call Gideon of great faith because he went to battle with 300 soldiers. Gideon was a weak-faithed man. He wanted a sign. He wanted another sign. And just in case that sign was a fluke, he wanted another sign to prove the sign was true that proved the sign was true. And then he kind of wimped and hollered all the way. And that's a lot of times the way I serve God, kind of wimping and hollering along the way, like, are you sure you want me to do this? I mean, this can't be the way. There's got to be a different way for you to work, God. But he uses us in that way. Moses didn't know whether he was coming or going. Like when he was laid in the river and raised up in Egypt, he knew that that was a time that God was calling him, and so he acted, and God said, no, not yet. You're acting on your time, not mine. And so when God finally did come and call him, the same guy who was ready to take matters into his own hands 40 years before is sitting here in this woe-is-me attitude saying, what do you mean, me? I'm not your guy. But you were raised up for this. And so he was all over the place, and David, we've known about the stories of David and his family. Solomon had his flaws. Samson had his flaws. Look through the judges and read about the acts of Samson. And what we see in the end is God is able to use men. And over and over and over again, he gives them second, third, fourth, fifth. And how many chances did he give to Israel? Because words get in the way. Jonah is asked to go to Nineveh and preach a message of salvation. And the truth is, Jonah wasn't afraid of the words. What we'll see in chapter 4 is Jonah was afraid that God was going to do exactly what he said he was going to do, which was save those people. And Jonah didn't want those people to be saved. He says in chapter 4, I knew you were a God of great mercy. I knew you were a God of justice. And I knew, I knew that they were going to turn to you. And I knew that you were going to have mercy on them. This is why I didn't want to preach this message. And even a prophet with that mindset, that preached a message with that mind. God uses. God uses to bring about change in an entire city, maybe even an entire nation of people, at least, at least for a time. Of people who were so far away from God, they didn't know which way to look for God. And when it comes to you and I, you know, how frequently do we find this excuse in our minds when we say, I know that people need to hear about God, but who am I? I don't have all the answers. What if they ask this question or that question? I just don't know. What would I say? How do I even begin that conversation? 
We use it as a crutch. We use it as an excuse to not do what we really know we should be doing. But see, here's the thing. God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and however many chances you will need to do, he continues to come back. And he continues to offer us those moments where we can proclaim the message that he has given us to proclaim. And with this second chance that Jonah receives, he uses these few words that Jonah speaks to bring about this great repentance. Because when it comes to giving God's message, here is the truth, that God doesn't need your eloquence to accomplish what he desires. He doesn't need your knowledge to accomplish his will. He doesn't need you to know the Bible inside and out, to have it memorized from cover to cover, to be able to answer every question in step. No, he just needs you to be willing to open up a conversation and to study beside someone. I... I like when people ask me a question that I have no clue about. Because at first, I will start to try to answer. In my mind, I'm like, okay, I, I, should, I should know this. What, how can I make it seem like I know what I'm talking about here? But it doesn't take very long of me thinking about that before I realize, you know what? I'm going to have to study and get back to you on that. And if it's someone that I don't know real well, It's a great way to say, why don't we meet for coffee and let's study that together? Because it's a great question. I don't know. Let's find out. Because this is the truth. God doesn't need my great ability to speak and to proclaim and to uh, my charisma to accomplish his will. He just needs us to be willing to be used. He invites us to lend our voice to the very simple message that he proclaims to people. And the message is simply this, I love you. I want you to be my child. So much so that I sent my only son to give his life that you might live. The gospel really is that simple. Let's look at what happens with Jonah here. Uh, we'll go back up and we'll, we'll go back to, to chapter 3, verse 1, and read chapter 3. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. And so Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. You remember what has just happened at the end of chapter 2, right? He has been vomited up on the land. Um, And when he lands on, on the dry ground, God says, okay, now, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. (laughs) 
and I'm going to give you the words that you're going to say. Can you imagine? I mean, it doesn't say he took a shower. It doesn't say he found a place to bathe. But here's a guy that spent three days in the belly of a fish. The outside of a fish doesn't smell very good. I can't imagine the inside of a fish smells that much better. I can't imagine. Uh, Do you ever cleaned or gutted a fish? What you find out is it stinks. Jonah's been living in this fish for three days. And then he gets puked up onto the ground, and he stands up, and he begins walking to Nineveh. Maybe the, maybe the, the stench added to his, uh, the power of what he was proclaiming, I don't know. Um, there have been some commentators that said Jonah was probably bleached from the stomach acid of the fish, and so he looked like a ghost coming through town proclaiming this message from God. I don't know if that's true. Or not. Could be. Could not be. I have no idea how stomach acid of a fish affects a human body. There have been no studies to do that because no one's been willing to go try to live inside of a fish for three days to figure out what you look like when you get puked out of it. And I don't suspect that many people will be volunteering for that science project anytime soon. Although if your kids are looking for a good science fair project, maybe that would be one uh, to try the effects of the fish's stomach acid on a human body after three days of living inside. And then you can come tell me how that worked out. And then we'll know a little bit more about Jonah. But he gets this second chance to do exactly what God had asked him to do before. Now Nineveh was an extremely large city, a three-day walk. And Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city And proclaimed, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Uh, The men of Nineveh believed in God. They proclaimed a fast. They dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And when word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, and put on sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. And then he issued a decree in Nineveh. This is a Gentile king. King of Nineveh, the Assyrian people. Um, this is the decree that he gives. By the order of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. And each must turn from his evil ways and turn from the violence he is doing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. And then God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, and so God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do to them, and he did not do it. So God is a God of second chances. He gives another chance here to uh, the people of Nineveh to, to repent of their ways, and they do. God's desire to save the city of Nineveh and to use Jonah as his messenger has not changed in this passage. It is still the same from the time he sent Jonah from the first time until he gets there the second time. Disobedience doesn't change God and it doesn't change his will. He still has this desire And he has this relentless love that continues to call. It continues to call for the people of Nineveh. It calls us 
and it transforms us. We see here that the love of God is faithful and it is persistent. That God will get what He desires. He will get what His will is. His will will be accomplished. And if it hadn't been Jonah, someone would have taken up and brought this message to Nineveh. Now, the Arkansas River, if you um, pay much attention to the way you know, rivers work, it begins in Leadville, uh, Colorado, and it snakes through the mountains for 152 miles. Elevation drops 4,650 feet. Uh, have you seen the paths that rivers carve? The Colorado River has carved out the Grand Canyon. And the way you see the force of the water as it continues to hit in a certain place, as it carves out little galleys in the rocks, pathways in the rocks, as it wears down and smooths others. You can pick up a rock from the bottom of a, of a creek bed or a river bed, and you can see that it's smooth because of that constant and persistent washing of the water over it. You can tell how long a rock has been in a riverbed by some of those things, particularly in some of those areas where the river moves rapidly. God's love is that way. It is faithful. It is persistent. It is unchanging. And it cuts and it shapes. And it slowly works on, the, on those stony, calloused parts of our hearts to transform us into the people that He has called us to be. But the love of God works the same way in the world. The love of God will erode stone. It will erode evil. It will cut away at those barriers that stand so vehemently opposed to anything that God has to offer but that relentless, faithful, persistent love of God transforms people. It transforms hearts. It transforms minds. And it brings about this state of repentance to where we acknowledge what we have done and where we have been and where we have not fallen in line with what God has asked. But true repentance is evidenced not by the words that we speak. Remember we said at the beginning, words get in the way. And words are important. It's important for me to say, I'm sorry. It is important for me to say, I'm not going to do that again. But the evidence that what I have said is true is when my action proves it out. Because if I say I'm sorry but continue to do the same thing that I've just apologized for, how can I really and truly be sorry? We have this conversation in our house frequently. You are not sorry. Because if you were sorry, you wouldn't continue to do what you have done. You're just saying I'm sorry to get out of trouble for a moment. But we continue to have this conversation. True repentance is evidenced by the way that we act. It's not just a confession 
of guilt that has no regard with what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the day after that. How frequently do we see that occurring in our lives? Apology without change is not repentance. It's just trying to avoid an immediate consequence. It's just trying to assuage the anger and wrath and hurt of another for a moment, but it is not repentance. The repentance that the love of God brings about is the kind that changes our action and the way that we behave in the future. Look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. He said, For godly grief produces a repentance not to be regretted and leading to salvation, but worldly grief produces death. And so when we are convicted by the love of God, when the world is convicted by the love of God, it, it, it motivates us to change the way we are living Because what we realize is we can't stand in the face of that kind of love, in the face of that kind of sacrifice, in the face of that kind of pursuit. And stay the same. Because it not only demands us to be different, but it obligates us to be different when we realize how far he has come for us. And the truth is, just like with Jonah's five-word sermon, most times the most simple and unassuming words can be the most profound. It doesn't take many words to change somebody's life for the better or for the worse. And you don't have to be eloquent. You don't have to be charismatic. You don't have to have a degree in public speaking. You don't have to understand what homiletics and hermeneutics and exegesis means to proclaim the gospel. You just have to know what it means to be human. You don't have to know what it means to be loved by God. And be willing to pass that along. And remember that some of the most simple words can be some of the most profound. And ultimately, it's the Spirit of God that affects the people of Nineveh. When the people of, under, uh, the people of Nineveh understand that they have offended the God of Israel, the God of the Hebrews, the Yahweh, their God. They understand that He is angry. It is God's Spirit and His presence that motivates them to change. It's not Jonah's great dissertation because Jonah basically says, turn or burn. He preached a good old-fashioned Jonathan Edwards sinners in the hand of an angry God kind of a sermon. God is mad at you and if you don't change, you are going to be destroyed. That message would get my attention, especially from a guy that had just been thrown up by a fish onto the shore. (laughs) 
but they listen and they change. They repent of their ways and they turn to a God they didn't even know. To a God they didn't even know. I've searched and searched to see if this is a true story or not. It's not on Snopes. It's not anywhere. So I'm going to give it to you and leave it to you at that. But it is on the Salvation Army's website. They claim it, so I'm going to assume that it's at least somewhat true. But Christmas Eve in 1910, General Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, he was almost to the end of his life. He couldn't speak. He couldn't attend the annual convention that they had and he didn't want to waste the Salvation Army's money on some long telegram. And so he sent a one-word telegram back to the convention to be read to all the people in its hearing. And when they pulled out this telegram, thousands of delegates are there. The moderator has announced that uh, William Booth could not be present, but he had sent this telegram. And when he opened up the message, he read one word. And the word was others. And that has been their motto since. It's one word. It's really simple. But it sums up what they strive to be about. The message of the gospel is so simple. And it drives everything that we do. And it should be a framework on which hangs every act that we do as we leave this place. And every interaction that we have with people who know or don't know who Jesus is. Love God. And love each other. We serve a God who is a God of second chances. He offers it to you every day. And his outstretched hand is extended to the world to take and to join his family. The question is, will we be available to proclaim that message? That salvation is ready for those who would listen.